0: in that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The ways the internet is changing religious practice in our world is being examined by scholars as it unfolds before our very eyes all of the time. The sheer speed with which the internet and various virtual spaces alters the religious landscape only quickened, it seems, with the COVID-19 pandemic and the research needed on these adaptations seems limitless. This is a topic I aim to discuss on the show due to the ever-changing ways with which people engage with religion as the world changes. This is the second of two thematically connected episodes within my 2021 Sacred Rites series. The first, featuring Dr. Thepa Sundaram on the previously released episode 214, discussed, among many other things, online hindu social media trends and practices during large celebrations this episode with caitlin Yugarets here on episode 215 traces how online and digital spaces in shinto traditions are altering the landscape of what is possible within religious practices around the world Caitlin Ugaretz is a digital anthropologist and Ph.D. candidate in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultural Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She earned a B.A. and M.A. in East Asian Languages and Civilizations from the University of Pennsylvania with a double concentration in Chinese and Japanese studies. Her research interests include Japanese religions, globalization, media, and digital technology. Supported by dissertation fellowships from the Social Science Research Council and Japan Foundation, she is conducting an ethnography of the growth of transnational online Shinto communities based on social media. Caitlin also hosts the educational YouTube channel Eat, Pray, Anime, which explores religion and history in Japanese pop culture and writes on Asian religions for the fantastic youtube series religion for breakfast we discuss all of these topics in this fantastic and wide-ranging conversation you can find caitlin on twitter at caitlin Ugaretz, and you can follow her educational youtube channel on twitter at eat underscore pray underscore anime without further delay please enjoy my conversation with caitlin Yugarets. Caitlin Ugaritz, welcome to Classical Ideas.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so stoked to be here.
0: Absolutely. I am also stoked to have you here. Stoked is kind of like one of my favorite words in the entire universe. So I'm glad that we can just go ahead and get that out of the way immediately off the bat because this is fabulous. Um, So Caitlin... You and I have been interacting on, on Twitter now for quite some time, and I've really enjoyed following your work and all the projects that you have. But I'm wondering if you can just introduce yourself a little bit to the audience, however you see fit, so they can know a little bit about you, uh, where you are and what you do.
1: Sure. Well, my name is Caitlin Ugrats. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and I'm an expert on Japanese religion, social media, and popular culture. Um, My training is as a digital anthropologist, so sometimes I joke that I stalk people on Facebook for a living. (laughs) Um, But in all seriousness, I'm currently researching uh, the globalization of the Japanese religion known as Shinto and the development of online Shinto communities. Uh, Some people might also know me as Kay instead of Caitlin, just sort of my alter ego for my uh, educational YouTube channel, Eat, Pray, Anime, where I explore the religious history and culture behind everyone's favorite Japanese media.
0: Amazing. Okay, so you obviously uh, have a life story behind all of these pathways that you've been following and have, have a story behind why you're interested in what you're interested in. And I want to frame your areas of expertise in your life experiences. So I want to know about how you came to care about Japan, Shinto, uh, anime. I want to know about any of these stories that have kind of led you up to this point throughout your life.
1: That's a really great question, and it's kind of one of those things that only makes sense with the benefit of hindsight. Sure. Um, I started watching anime when I was little. I was born in the mid-90s, kind of the golden age of Saturday morning cartoons. And uh, while my dad was always working um, when I was little in seminary, uh, we my family is uh, from a Presbyterian family. My father is the minister of a small Presbyterian church in upstate New York. And when he wasn't uh, studying theology, we were watching any kind of anime that was available at that time in the US on TV, which is not a lot, but Sailor Moon, Card Captors, and uh, like mech shows like Mobile Suit Gundam Wing, Pokemon, I'm definitely the Pokemon generation. Awesome, awesome. Uh, We were watching all of those things on on Saturdays. So you kind of have church on the one side, geekdom on the other, playing board games, playing video games. Uh, I grew up with all of that. Um, I didn't get into Asian studies until starting in high school. I actually went to um, boarding school as a scholarship student, specifically because I wanted to take Chinese In high school, my Mm -hmm. uh, mother's side of the family actually comes from China. Um, And since this is a podcast, no one can see that I am extremely white looking, (laughs) uh, red hair, (laughs) very Caucasian. Um, And so growing up with a family that was Chinese, but not really having a lot of contact with them when they were in China, I decided I really wanted to take Chinese language and reconnect with that side of my family. My mother doesn't speak Chinese Um, So that kind of pushed me in the direction of Asian studies, I thought well with my with my background and my language ability, I could do something in like the Foreign Service be a diplomat or something like that and kind of bring China and the US closer together as I saw them in my family. And um, because I went into college with so much Chinese language already under my belt as a high school student, I had time to take on other classes. I actually did uh, my bachelor's and my master's at the same time. Mm. And uh, my advisor at that point said, well, um, you still need language credits. So you could either take Tibetan Or Japanese. Mm. So at that point, I finally felt like I had some space and some permission in my life to dive more into the Japanese things that were just kind of um, a hobby for me. Mm -hmm. My master's thesis was in early Chinese uh, philology and orthography. So Han Dynasty Chinese characters, what they looked like, how they related to concepts of gender and morality and like. The early 200s BC to CE, yeah. uh, entirely different from what I do now, which is contemporary Japanese religion. Um, nothing to do with religion in my earlier stuff. So I started taking Japanese. It was really fun. It was really interesting. It was really different from Chinese, and that was, you know, something new for me. I found that really exciting. Uh, so I started taking more classes in Japanese studies. And someone you've already had as an as a, uh, interviewee on the show, uh, Dr. Julian Thomas at the University of Pennsylvania, where I got my bachelor's and my master's, he was teaching a class called Politics of Shinto. Amazing. And <laughs> the connection.
0: Yeah, I love it. Uh,
1: at that point, I didn't really know anything about Shinto other than there were some connections in anime. There were connections with some video games that I enjoyed growing up, specifically like the, the Final Fantasy games and Okami um, were really popular. And so I kind of went into this class as just like a Japanophile and came out wanting to do my the rest of my graduate work on Shinto, on Japanese religion, and did like a total 180 Although I was still really connected to my Chinese background. So I decided to let the PhD market kind of decide for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Shinto studies and early Chinese orthography are so small in academia that they're like, you need to cast a broad net when you're applying places. And there were maybe only four people that I could really work with as advisors, Um, for either of my projects. So I split the difference and kind of put it out there. Um, And I was really surprised that the majority of interest was in my Japanese project, looking at Shinto and how it's been defined as an indigenous religion and what that means for something to be indigenous or native um, and all of the complicated political and identity politics things that go up with that. And so I moved to Santa Barbara I'm working with uh, Dr. Fabio Rambelli in, in Shinto Studies there, and I, I'm, I've never looked back. It's it's super fun.
0: Amazing. Does Dr. Julian Thomas know about the effect that he had on the course of your life based on one single course? Have you been able to convey this to him?
1: I've tried. Um, Dr. Thomas is fantastic, um, but also extremely humble. And so anytime I, I try to really express my, my gratitude for his, just his teaching style and the the complexity that he brings into the classroom Um, i think he blushes a little bit but uh, he's definitely had a huge impact on my career we continue to be you know great colleagues he's a fantastic mentor um that was really one of the first graduate courses that i took in my junior year of being um a bachelor's student and he just did he has such a way about him in the classroom to really listen to students And boil down what you're trying to say very clumsily in a way that's actually significant and moves the conversation in the class forward. And I I use that technique that I learned from him a lot in the classroom uh, myself, but it's, it's nice to continue to be in the same academic circles, although in different capacities these days.
0: How did you realize that you could like take your pop culture interests in anime and connect that to your research? Was there kind of like an aha moment where you're like, "Whoa, I can take this thing which is super relevant to so many millions of people around the world and use that within my scholarship." What was did you realize that connection early on or was that kind of or was or was that come later?
1: It's a newer thing in terms of teaching, but I've always been interested in pop culture, but it's always been a hobby, especially in Japanese studies. There is a bit of a stigma against having like too much passion about Japanese popular culture. Um, You don't want to be considered like a weeb or an otaku, which is somebody who has like an all-consuming fascination with Japan, oftentimes orientalist or essentializing um, these passions are often like, um, pathologized, um, in, in scholarship. And so as a young woman in a, a field such as Japanese studies, I did everything I could not to talk about popular culture, um, just to, you know, keep that professional, uh, demeanor and not have anybody have any, um, mis- misconceptions about what I was doing with my research. Um, very trying to be very serious. But I looking back, I see that popular culture has always been kind of my entry point into things that I am less familiar with or don't understand. Um, For example, when I started uh, in East Asian Studies, I started a blog called East Asian Studies According to Avatar The Last Airbender, (laughs) which was a favorite cartoon of mine. I was seeing so many connections. Early China feels like such a far away thing. Um, But another professor and advisor of mine, um, Paul Golden at University of Pennsylvania, when he was teaching intro to early Asia uh, and early China, he Used a lot of slang. We're we're both from the Trenton area in New Jersey, and he just had such a way about him. For example, he was explaining how crossbows in um, early China were such a groundbreaking invention that you could, instead of putting like ten years of developing swordsmen, just a single guy who's good with a sword, you could line up, and this is this is a quote, you could line up a bunch of dumbasses and just have them shoot straight. (laughs) And I thought that this kind of more popular vernacular approach to to history and culture was really useful. And so I started looking for those kinds of things that I could grab onto in in cartoons and uh, comics and things like that. Yeah. When I started teaching, I would have a little bit of time at the end of every lesson. I used to call it Caitlin's Corner where I would try to bring in something in popular culture to make those connections for my students. So, for example, we would be learning about um, Taoism and the Chinese philosopher Zhuangzi. There are some quotes from Zhuangzi that a pseudo-Tibetan robot in the <laughs> online game Overwatch um, can say as a voice emotion um you can kind of like make these quips. And so I would include all of these little things that I know that my students enjoy to try to make something kind of old, maybe dry, um, a little more relatable.
0: I know that you're familiar with the book uh, Shinto, the Kami Way by Sokyo Ono um, on Tuttle. My students and I would read huge passages of that in my religious studies high school class. And the connections that they would make when the names of the commie would start popping up and then they would see those connections to those popular culture names that they recognize from watching television and videos online. They were like, oh my gosh, this is like the worlds are colliding now and you could see those connections really making making them just think intensely. And I love those moments and I'm just glad that you do too.
1: Thanks. Yeah, those are the most fun for me.
0: I love it, I love it. so let's talk about uh, online Shinto. I know that you're interested in you know digital Shinto in you know the modern day of today, and you know I want to know about what online Shinto is like in the age of the pandemic really quick. so what are you looking at right now that is relevant to this very strange time in which we all find ourselves in?
1: Yeah, well, as a digital anthropologist. In the beginning, it was really difficult to talk about my research because we weren't all online um, streaming and communicating the way that we all are now in the pandemic. So explaining how you could have whole religious communities that only communicate online is a very difficult concept pre-pandemic. But uh, a lot of religious communities have had to pivot. Lots of different social communities in general have had to pivot Uh, More towards online interaction because of social distancing restrictions, lockdowns, um, et cetera. Even um, in my own personal sphere here, uh, I mentioned that my father is a minister. Similarly, you know, when the state of New York locked down, we had to go to live streaming. Um, services and having online fellowship time for older people who've never used social media before. And I've seen through my digital ethnography that shrines both in uh, Shinto shrines in Japan and in the U.S. and around the world have had to adopt a similar model. This has been a a bit of a challenge for Shinto shrines, specifically because there's been sort of a convention or a taboo against internet-based worship, mm. um, it's called internet to sanpai, or worshiping online. Uh, so a lot of shrines didn't have the technological infrastructure or experience to go online. And so they were very quickly trying to figure out how to continue offering ritual services to their communities in any other non-pandemic time For example, if you had an illness, you could walk to your local Shinto shrine, um, pray to the Shinto deities called Kami, perhaps um, receive an amulet to help protect your health. Uh, Shinto, in particular, uh, has always had a role in protecting and resolving illnesses, pandemics, and so not being able to physically go to a shrine to participate in large yearly festivals that are meant to ward off pandemics. Um, such as uh, Yasuka Shrine's uh, Gion Festival in the summer, they haven't been able to hold it two years in a row because of the pandemic. And so uh, Shinto priests have started experimenting with doing ritual services on social media, live streaming. Uh, some shrines have even held whole festivals on, um, what is it called, Animal Crossing? Kind of a in a very big and uh, very well-resourced shrine made a whole summer festival in Animal Crossing that was really popular. Um, So almost there's never been a better time in a very strange way to be a a digital anthropologist of religion Mm. because there's so much interesting stuff happening. Although the time difference is a little difficult at this point. Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Something that I'm curious about is, so you've mentioned how the priests are adjusting their own practices to make things accessible to people in the community. So before people could just, you know, pop by their their shrine on their way home from work or on their way to work or whatever. Exactly. Practice looks so much different within, you know, uh, for Shintoism in general. And I'm wondering how practitioners or normal people who may or may not even identify as religious in any way, I'm wondering what their practices are like and how they're adjusting to the current lockdowns and not being able to go to the shrine. Are they doing any kinds of like home practices that are adjustments or what? Are, what's that look like?
1: That's such an insightful question. I just finished writing an article on home practices for online Shinto communities uh, for an upcoming uh, edited volume. Uh, yes, there has been a turn um, towards home-based practices. In fact, this is A lot more common in transnational or global online communities, Uh, the people that I spend the majority of my time with online they don't live in Japan, the nearest Shinto shrine is probably in another country, if you live on the West Coast of uh, the mainland United States, you have a little more luck. There's two shrines that you can visit. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, a lot of the focus has been on home practices centering on the uh, domestic Shinto altar, which is called a kamidana or a kami shelf um, that houses um, an ofuda or a paper or some other sort of material talisman into which the Shinto deities, the kami, can kind of reside during um, prayers and offerings. So um, transnational Shinto practitioners will give offerings at the Kamidana, pray for various things, express gratitude for blessings, that sort of thing. And uh, we've def- I've definitely seen a turn towards that, um, especially during the pandemic, although the pandemic has also made home practice difficult in other ways. For example, it's very hard to source the materials for the kamidana, um, particularly the more sacralized elements like the ofuda, some of the accessories you can just get on Amazon or eBay, and it's not Mm -hmm. an issue. But some things you have to get directly from Japan, directly from a shrine. And the global flow of these materials, these sacred materials and ideas and connections with shrines um, have been challenged by the pandemic in different ways. For example. Um, difficulties with shipping has been a major issue. And so there's been more talk about how difficult and the strategies that um, transnational Shinto practitioners have and cultivate and share with each other to overcome these obstacles has been really um, enlightening. Um, So yeah, I've learned a lot from the pandemic. I never would have thought so much about material culture. If I didn't see everyday people complaining, I can't get this thing. It's been stuck for months. How am I supposed to um, practice and cultivate a a relationship with the kami and tell them what's going on in my life. Um, But people always find a way and it's the same in Japan. Shinto has adapted to numerous challenges and social upheavals and illnesses and pandemics. So it continues to do so, um, but it's very interesting to study
0: yeah something that I, I mean during the beginning of the pandemic more I was talking to a lot of Buddhist leaders and Christian leaders and Muslim leaders who were adjusting their practices to being more home based and how they were dealing with uh, you know keeping their communities involved and engaged and feeling positive with regards to their practice so adding a Shinto element to to this has been such an interesting subplot. For the podcast over the last year and a half, to watch how the world has just ebbed and flowed along with these challenging times, and I'm wondering about the challenges of your research. We can get a little touristy if you want for a second too. I'm wondering what you would benefit from as a researcher if you were able to go to uh, if you were able to go to Japan right now. How what would you do if you were able to? You just go there and. And be fully engaged on the ground.
1: That's an excellent question. This has been something I've been pondering for over a year now. I was supposed to start my my field research in Japan in August 2020. Wow. I have now been <laughs> living with my parents uh, during the pandemic. We've been supporting each other, but it's been a whole year. I have been talking to my fellowship organization, the Japan Foundation. They've been amazing. But it's crazy to think how, without the pandemic, I would have already been to Japan, done my year, and come back this month. Uh, But I'm glad that I've been able to study many things digitally. But the the component of being there, as an anthropologist, of course, participating in things, and just observing, seeing people, interviewing, being on the ground, is very important to my methodology. So I have this whole plan for when I get back to Japan, all of the things I'm going to do. Of course, that has changed a lot because of the pandemic. For example, a lot of um, international tourists will not be able to go to Japan for a long, long time. This is something that I'm really interested in, looking at how foreigners in particular visit Japan for touristy reasons. They often visit one, if not several Shinto shrines. And that's where that interest in Shinto begins so I, I want to be able to capture that moment. But right now, that moment is kind of impossible,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: is why I think a lot of people turn to popular culture and media to engage with Japan when you can't actually visit. But if I was there on the ground today, I would definitely be visiting lots of shrines. Japan has over 100,000 shrines dedicated to different kami in different traditions. Some of them are hundreds, thousands of years old, other ones are new and also very interesting. Um, There are a few shrines that have branches in the United States that I would particularly like to visit and talk to the priests. I wanna be talking to priests and the shrine maidens and the Shrine precinct and caretakers and just ask them like, what do you think about foreigners coming to Japan, visiting the shrine, and then going home and deciding to practice Shinto, like for the rest of their lives, you know, like, was that in your intention, how do you relate to those people, how can you link up in different ways, I'd also spend a lot of time I think visiting um, anime sacred sites. Uh, there are a number of, of places that are sort of meccas to Japanese pop culture fans and have actually attained sacred status, so I'd really like to go visit some of those. Um, in the past, when I've been to Japan, it's been all business. I'd really like to go to like the Studio Ghibli, uh, Miyazaki Museum and, and stuff like that. I think it would be really fun. Um, I've never really gotten the chance to be a tourist So I would love, I'd love to do that. (laughs) In 2022, there's going to be a Miyazaki or Studio Ghibli theme park. And that is super exciting from a fan standpoint and a religious standpoint.
0: I know that there's a lot of research that's able to be done within theme parks as well. Like I have a friend who is a professor uh, on the East Coast here, and a lot of her work involves Disney theme parks as well. And she's in religious studies, so I mean, I know that that's like definitely an area that could be written about, especially in like a public scholarship. Kind of way because it transforms the ways that people outside of academics can understand their experiences when they go to these theme parks just for an enjoyable afternoon. You know what I mean? Yes,
1: it's a fascinating area of research. And if anybody wants to fund my research trip to the Miyazaki theme park, Uh, They can get in contact with me. That would be fantastic.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, uh, Caitlin, something else that I'm interested in is I know that you did a recent piece on the work of Marie Kondo, who is a name that many listeners out there will recognize um, because of her, you know, her decluttering work and things like that. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what's going on with her work lately, uh, why you're writing about her. And, you know, because she's such a well-known and popular figure within pop culture in the U.S., but I'm wondering what's going on with her and why you are focusing on her in some of your work lately.
1: Yes, Marie Kondo is back again. Uh, This past Tuesday, that's August 31st, 2021, she came out with a new Netflix series called Sparking Joy with uh, Marie Kondo. Um, She's already, as many people might already know, had a Netflix series about tidying the home. It's a very like classic HGTV kind of reality show where she comes in and the family is dysfunctional, uh, mainly because their house is cluttered. She helps them let go of things and uh, figure out which items that they possess, quote unquote, spark joy in English. And it's really become a phenomenon. People are so Um, enchanted, fascinated with Marie Kondo and where she gets her ideas from and how she has such a profound impact on some people's lives. And so when I saw that she was coming out with a new TV show where she ventures outside of the home and applies her kind of philosophy of tidying up, transforming your life and finding more joy through an intentional, meaningful connection um, with you know, materiality in general within the home, I knew I had to write something about it. And so in originally in the religion news service, and then um, in the Washington Post, I wrote an article, the untidiness of uh, Marie Kondo's eclectic spirituality. This kind of comes out of a pet peeve of mine as a Shinto scholar, that anything that is vaguely religious, but not distinctly recognizable as Buddhism in Japan often gets labeled Shinto. So everybody all around me was saying, oh, Caitlin, you do Shinto. What do you think about Marie Kondo? Mm -hmm. I said, well, I don't think a lot about Marie Kondo because I don't really consider what she does to be Shinto or representative of Shinto. And so I figured I had to look more into this. Mm -hmm. Um, In the way that Marie Kondo engages with things, for example, like greeting her house, um, she pauses for a moment and kind of communes with the home and tries to kind of suss out what the home wants. She has this emphasis on, she argues that Japanese people all share this idea that every object or material, a rock, a tree, um, your cell phone can have a spirit in it. And a lot of people link this to Shinto animism, um, which is a very fraught term. Uh, My colleague, Julian Thomas, has talked about this at length. So I basically wanted to set out for people how I see Marie Kondo, um, what she actually has to do with Shinto and what else I think that she's up to. It became a lot easier to talk about um, once there were specifics on her website in 2019, Marie Kondo launched an online shop that made waves because she was suddenly selling um, a lot of very uh, nice looking um, home ornaments and um, organizational boxes, which kind of pushed against her idea that you can tidy up without um, buying anything else of getting rid of things. And then suddenly she's touting um, materials. But the thing that was most interesting about her website for me is the rituals section Mm. where she has all of these different things that she argues are a part of her daily life that bring her joy. Some of them have kind of Shinto common notations, but a lot of them don't um, in really striking ways. The the image that I always keep coming back to, and it's actually the first image in the first episode of her new uh, series on Netflix, is Marie Kondo striking a rose quartz crystal with a tuning fork. Mm. And for anybody who doesn't know anything about Shinto, I'll just tell them that crystals and tuning forks are not a part of Shinto. This is something completely different. And so I found this as an entry point into the other things that make up Marie Kondo's spirituality. Of course, it has kind of a a well-curated Japanese flavor to it, but religion in Japan is a lot more complicated than just Buddhism or Shinto, there are new religions, there are new new religions, there are different uh, spiritual groups and healing communities, Um, all sorts of really interesting things that don't really fall under the umbrella of Shinto. There are people who like uh, tuning forks and rose quartz crystals in Japan as everywhere else. Um, And Marie Kondo is so savvy in being able to tap into these Uh, spiritual economies that are really global. They're part Mm. of Japan, but they're part of the rest of the world. And just like kind of picking and choosing very intentionally what she thinks will be um, appealing to her audience. And so Marie Kondo is not really selling uh, Shinto spirituality with kind of a homely spin on it. She's really selling the the global um, spiritual market.
0: I'm wondering what the reception has been like for your work on Marie Kondo. Have you gotten any feedback on any of the work?
1: I haven't gotten a lot of feedback. I, one of my main goals in the article was to push back against people saying, well, Marie Kondo is either Shinto or crazy. Mm. (laughs) And she's not really either one of those. So I hope that I've done my job in saying that Marie Kondo is very smart in the move that she's making in creating her spiritual brand. And people have picked up on this very well. A lot of the conversation on Twitter um, really shows me that people are thinking about Marie Kondo in new ways outside of the Shinto box, which I think is fantastic. Um, but there hasn't been a lot of pushback that I've seen. So I think that's good that the needle on Marie Kondo is moving over time as we get to know her better. In the beginning, it, we only had a few books by her that were translated into English. Then she had a TV show. Then she had a shop. Now she has a second TV show. I think people are starting to see more sides of Marie Kondo and what she's doing. And it's starting to to click.
0: Mm, cool. And so, you know, we came to know Marie Kondo a lot through video and video is another medium in which you are doing a lot of work in lately. And... I think that the, one of the first ways that you came on to into my attention was your work with uh, Dr. Andrew Henry. And Andrew Henry is fabulous. And he was uh, my guest on episode 88 of Classical Ideas way back when to talk about his the YouTube channel, Religion for Breakfast. And I know that you recently collaborated with Andrew's channel for a series on Shinto. And I'm curious on how that experience came about for you uh, to come to work with Andrew.
1: Yeah, it's been fantastic working with Andrew. This was almost a year now that we started working together. I... Uh, Andrew heard about me from other people in Shinto studies. I heard about him from other people in religious studies. I saw him at the, I think it was the 2019 AAR, um, the uh, American Academy of Religion Conference, uh, talking with uh, Dr. Anthea Butler, again from the University of Pennsylvania, about public scholarship. I've always been really interested in public scholarship, but I I didn't really know how to go about it. And it seemed like one of those things you couldn't really get into until after you had your PhD, after you had landed a tenure track job, after you had established yourself basically in academia. So it was so inspiring to see um, Dr. Henry start this project while he was in graduate school and then just see it grow and boom. And by the time he was on the market, it was huge. And I I thought that that was just so amazing. So I jumped at the chance to be able to work with him. I didn't really realize how much of an impact it would have until the first episode came out. And within the first 30 minutes, there were like 3000 views and already several comments. And I thought to myself, I've never taught this many people in my entire graduate career of teaching up until this point that I reached in 30 minutes with a video. Um, So I was so excited to work on that project with him. There's not a lot of popular, well-researched information about Shinto out there. And I was really glad that uh, Dr. Henry wanted to bring that to his channel and his audience.
0: I love it. Well, and I actually recommended that series that you worked on to some of my religious studies high school teacher friends who use the religion for breakfast in their curriculum all of the time. And I was like, Hey, the new Shinto stuff just came out from religion for breakfast. And that was before I knew that you were involved in that, but now that's really great. And is your role in the videos that you work on for religion for breakfast, specifically as a content writer, what is your, what is your role within?
1: Yes. So uh, my role is researcher slash writer So basically, Dr. Henry contacted me and said, hey, I want to do a five episode series on Shinto. Uh, Dr. Henry's always been interested in in Japanese culture, even though he studies something very different with uh, early Christianity. And so he wanted to his first more global um, series of series, (laughs) series on religion to be Shinto, to be about Japan to kind of break out of the Christianity, Western religion bubble, which is awesome. So yes, Andrew and I, you know, got together and thought about, you know, if you could only teach five things about Shinto, what would they be? What do you want people to know? And so we, we worked on the, the premises together. And then I wrote the, the episodes, uh, Dr. Henry recorded them, uh, edited them, And uh, then sent them out into the world. Mm. So it was very much kind of a behind-the-scenes experience for me. And it was my first time writing for YouTube. I've written in television before in China, but this was something completely different.
0: Awesome. Well, one of the videos that really captured my attention is Buddhism and Shinto Explained a Complicated History. And I'm wondering why this topic out of the videos that you made together, this one really caught my attention. And I'm wondering about the backstory behind this particular episode and why you thought that explaining the complicated history between Buddhism and Shinto was so important.
1: Yes, this is a really fascinating topic, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure it got into the series. Um, The series in general answers major questions that I often see asked online particularly in online Shinto communities and it's also designed to head off some of the really bad takes that I see online Mm. and so you know one of the the major questions is you know how are Buddhism and Shinto actually related and it is a very complicated history there's um, a famous scholar of Japanese religion Kuroda Toshio who wrote a very inflammatory uh, article on how Shinto was part of Buddhism for a really long time. And this has generated a lot of really productive debate in academia about the actual relationship between Shinto and Buddhism. But basically, you can't go back in Japanese history and say, okay, there was Buddhism and there was Shinto in the early times and they were separate. They were very much connected to each other. And I'm very sensitive to this issue one because of my training with uh, Dr. Thomas in the politics of Shinto class but also because of my advisor, uh, Dr. Rambeli who works a lot on Hunji Suijaku theory Um, which is the combination of Buddhist and Shinto deities. I think that this combination is the most interesting. But then when you get to the modern period in Japan, Buddhism and then something we can call Shinto independently are forcefully separated. And so this kind of schism in Japanese religion is really, really interesting. It provokes a lot of questions like how were they related before? How could you separate them? Why would you want to separate them? And then, you know, what did people think about that? It's a it's a complex issue. But a lot of times when you look back at the history of Japanese religion, it's very hard to say, okay, this is Buddhism over here, and that's Shinto over there, and you can't get your chocolate and your peanut butter. <laughs> so my, my main goal with that episode was just to complicate people's idea of Buddhism and Shinto because their separation seems very natural today, mm. but it wasn't always that way.
0: Gotcha. Interesting. And, you know, I get the impression from working for uh, with Religion for Breakfast that you were very inspired. It seems like you've had like a creative boom for yourself after working with that. And I'm wondering if working with Religion for Breakfast had anything to do with the creation of your own channel, Eat, Pray, Anime. And I'm wondering if those two experiences are connected to uh, inspire you to pursue your own area of expertise within a general education YouTube channel.
1: Yes, Dr. Henry, the experience of working with him and working on the Shinto series for Religion for Breakfast is 100% the reason why I am in YouTube today. Uh, Thanks, Dr. Henry. Maybe we'll see how it goes. Um, It's a tough gig, but I would have never thought about creating my own YouTube channel. Anyone who knows me from college or earlier knows that I'm a very shy anxious type of person. I never want to be at the front of the class. I never want to be the first to raise my hand or talk or draw attention to myself in any, any sort of way. All my report cards, used to say, you know, is very bright, but needs to speak up more in class and participate. <laughs> and somehow I decided that I wanted to be the host of a YouTube channel and be front and center, which is just um, bonkers. If you asked me a year ago, I, I would have laughed. Um, But the experience of working with Dr. Henry on religion for breakfast and seeing people's reactions to my research, um, the comments of people learning new things and being intrigued and wanting to learn more was really, really impressive. It had a deep impact on me. And so I just kind of started playing with ideas in my head while I was writing the scripts and seeing them produced. Well, you know, what would I title of that episode or what would my thumbnail look like or if i was writing a sixth episode uh, what would that be about and you know what would i call my channel and i was mulling it over for so long that i just kind of decided well let's try it out let's see if people are are interested and so that's how eat pray anime was born I'm not entirely sure it was a good idea to start such a ambitious project in the middle of a pandemic with uh, no funding, but (laughs) it's going pretty well so far. And it's a lot of fun.
0: I'm wondering about the unseen, unpaid labor that is going on behind the scenes with something like your show, because your show is very well produced and you put a lot of time and effort into it. And I'm wondering what it looks like behind the scenes for what it takes for you to single-handedly bring all this content to fruition for your viewers.
1: Well, thank you for the compliment. I'm glad that the quality is improving. It's a really steep learning curve. I've been doing this since November, so it hasn't quite been a year yet, but I've, I've learned so much. And I have so much more respect now for um, academics who make YouTube videos, people in general who make YouTube videos. It's not easy to just sit in front of the camera and be interesting and teach people things and make them think about things in in new ways. Um, the research and the, the writing I already had familiarity with, that's kind of the easy part for me, but the filming and the editing are what are most time consuming and that I'm really trying to work on my skills there. Um, the most difficult thing that maybe people don't know about YouTube um, and the process that goes into making it is just trying to set up a studio uh, takes a lot of time um, particularly because, as I mentioned, due to the pandemic and housing issues and not being able to get into Japan, I'm living with my parents. We got a pandemic puppy. His name is Max. He's half Corgi, half Terrier. I love him so much. And yet he is the bane of my YouTube existence Nice, um, because he somehow he knows when I turn the camera on and I sit facing the camera, he will just bark and bark and jump on me, and it's it's literally impossible to film in my house. If I go upstairs in my room, he will sit at the foot of the stairs and just cry, and you can hear it in the background in some of my early videos um, that are now too cringy for me to watch. Um, you can hear my dog sometimes barking in the background, I
0: love um, and
1: you can see the kitchen where I took my uh, PhD exams in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so the filming is is difficult. I'm really looking forward to when I can have my own studio. But the editing takes the longest time. So I have to leave my house. Um, I have a room that my church allows me to use to record. I've got a green screen so you don't see sad church basement. And, I've, you know, I've got all my gear. I schlep it here. I schlep it back. But the editing... Oh, my goodness. I I don't think a lot of people know, although teachers are now recording their own videos for the classroom. But when you're editing a YouTube video with animations and words and a roll and B roll and all that kind of stuff, it takes about an hour to edit a minute of finished video. Mm -hmm. And so if a video mine typically run around 10 to 12 minutes. That's like 24 hours of editing. It's a a grueling process and it really is a steep learning curve. Um, But I thank you for saying that they are well-produced because that's been a labor of love of mine. Just watching YouTube videos, learning about the strategy, what goes into a good thumbnail, how to optimize the search engine information, how to write a good description, how to just be like not terrible on camera uh, has been a huge learning curve. Um, and the monetization process is also something that I never really thought about until I started working with Dr. Henry um, and how he's able to generate enough income for himself and to hire people like me to write scripts on on different topics and, uh, you know, have an editor. You know, I do everything on my own. <laughs> Andrew started out that way, but now he has I'm an editor who helps him with videos. It's a really steep process to be able to get monetized. You need 1,000 subscribers Mm -hmm. and 4,000 watch hours. And I thought that the subscribers would be the hard part. But thankfully, people (laughs) seem to think that my my content is interesting or at least like anime enough to to try it out. But the watch hours is so difficult. Um, So if there's one thing that I could tell uh, educators who use YouTube uh, videos from YouTube educators like Dr. Henry and myself in the classroom, I would say, please um, assign the videos to, for your students to watch prior to class because I'm not monetized yet. I would like to be. <laughs> uh, Santa Barbara is an is a expensive place to live mm-hmm. and the job market does not look great. So I would love to continue doing YouTube. I need those watch hours. Um, A lot of us do just to keep the lights on and to keep YouTube showing our content, the views and the view duration are so important. So if I was able to have all of the students watch my video independently and then perhaps watch it together in the classroom, which is not what I used to do. I used to just show the video in class to everybody. That would be such a huge help to uh, YouTube educators who are trying to Um, get the algorithm on YouTube to notice them and to be able to share their content with a wider audience of people.
0: I love it. Everybody out there listening, go check out eat, pray anime. I promise it's really good. I was watching them this morning and I was like, this is so great. And I hit that subscribe button really quick. So I added, so I added to your, a little bit to your statistics just this morning, you know, so we're here because of your involvement with the 2021 Sacred Rights cohort as well which is, you know, obviously the series that I've been working on now for some time. And I'm wondering how your experience has been with Sacred Rights so far and how you are thinking about your own skill set after going through the trainings and being being a part of this fantastic group of scholars.
1: Secret Rights has been amazing. If anybody's thinking about applying, just go for it. I have learned so much that I never knew I needed to know. And then, you know, everything that I knew that I needed to work on. Um, Sacred Rights has been so amazing, particularly for me in two areas community and just building confidence. I often struggle as somebody who's doing digital research on global transnational. Um, topics that uh, the community that I'm usually in is not sure what to do with that <laughs> or popular culture. No, it's not 17th century Buddhist texts. Um, so I've, I've always been looking for people who get excited about public scholarship in the same way that I do. And Sacred Rights has been that a thousand percent. Every week we've uh, worked with different people in our cohort on different projects and just having a sounding board and getting feedback on pitches has been so helpful. It's so energizing and inspiring to be with people who are just genuinely excited for you to try new things and to also try those new things alongside you. I'm so proud of um, one of my cohort mates Deepa. We were both working on pitches. We both said, I don't think this is very good. What do you think? And, you know, we both said, I think this is the best thing ever. Somebody needs to read it. Uh, You know, a couple months later, we're both in RNS and we're in the Washington Post. I mean, that's it's amazing. And we we share um, that experience. Uh, Sacred Rice has also been amazing for working on my confidence Mm -hmm. as a young scholar um, who often struggles with imposter syndrome particularly i never would have imagined that in a couple of months i would just cold call uh, email the new york times or the washington post because i had an idea mm-hmm. and i wanted them to publish it i actually had the idea for my uh, marie kondo piece about a year ago and i didn't think anybody would be interested in it so i figured i would just put it on my youtube channel and if some people watched it great but um, now it's been in the Washington Post and RNS, which is amazing. Um, it's been so helpful to kind of grow into my own skin as an academic who faces the public, who wants to talk to people outside of academia and, you know, teach things and learn from other people about other things and um, SACRED RIGHTS WAS ALSO PARTICULARLY HELPFUL, BOTH COMMUNITY AND CONFIDENCE, WHEN I WAS INVITED TO CONSULT FOR um, A TRAINING CARD GAME, WHICH I CAN'T SAY MUCH ABOUT BECAUSE I SIGNED AN NDA, okay. <laughs> BUT I'VE NEVER THOUGHT ABOUT THIS KIND OF WORK. AND SO BEING ABLE TO TALK WITH PEOPLE um, ABOUT HOW TO ENGAGE WITH A COMPANY, WHICH IS VERY DIFFERENT FROM ENGAGING WITH THE PUBLIC, HOW TO POSITION MYSELF AS AN EXPERT how to stand up for myself in terms of compensation as a young scholar and as a woman um, Mm -hmm. has been so incredibly useful. And these are skills that I think academics all need to have so that we we value ourselves, but we also value each other and we learn how to support all different kinds of um, education and research.
0: Awesome. I mean, you know, something else I'm curious about with all of you is why you think that studying or learning about your areas of interest matters for people outside of the academy? If somebody comes up to you and says, why should I care about Shinto in 2021? Like, what what would you say to these people to get them to be curious about your areas of expertise specifically?
1: That's a great question. Popular takes on Shinto tend to be either really reductionist about Japan and East Asia, so that it's saying it's the ancient Japanese way of life, or it's a nature religion, or it's anything that's not Buddhism. It's a nationalistic or a materialistic, uh, militaristic religion. They all reinforce these Orientalist stereotypes Um, Like, you know, Japanese people and their approaches to religion are inherently ancient or foreign or mysterious, wise or weird. And like we Westerners can't hope to understand them. Uh, This really gets on my nerves. I think that Japan is understandable and that we all should understand Japan. I think it helps us to also understand ourselves better. Um, Why do we get to say such reductionist things about Shinto without examination? I think we need to look at what we think of as, you know, the quote-unquote right or appropriate ways of doing religion, what religion looks like, feels like, um, all of that. Religion in Japan and Japanese religion around the world are so much more complicated than any of these singular definitions. I think complexity is interesting. And it's important. You know, if we can recognize that Shinto has a long history, it is bound up in global flows of religious thought and practice, community and identity formation, history, music and the arts, politics, law, violence, peace, and of course, anime. I mean, religion can be all of these things. Um, And sometimes people say things like this is a special characteristic of Shinto. For example, I read in a book recently on religion and anime in Japan that Japan has a special relationship with religion and cartoons and or television in general. And I just don't think they're watching the right kind of television in Mm. the West. (laughs) Um, So if we can use Japan and Shinto as a model for kind of deconstructing our preconceived notions of what religion looks like and how religion relates to other aspects of our life, I think that's supremely valuable, um, even if you're not as big of a Japan nerd as I am.
0: I love it. Well, I'm wondering what some of your goals are within public scholarship. Obviously, growing the YouTube channel, EPray Anime, is high on the list of priorities. Um, but what are you working on next? What can people expect for from you in the next couple of years that you're hoping to achieve?
1: Oh, I want to do so many things. <laughs> Well, first of all, it's not very public, but I'd like to finish my dissertation sooner or later. Mm-hmm. On top of that, I have some really exciting things I can't say much about yet, but I've been consulting on board games and television. I'm hoping that adding some more depth and, as I said, complexity to Japanese religion in the media we consume will have an impact, will get people more interested in learning about Japan about religion, and just like enhance their enjoyment of of these things. I think it's totally fine to not be serious all the time and just have fun. But I find that it's more fun if things are well researched and grounded in in actual human life. And aside from that, I'm going to keep working on um, my my Twitter threads, reaching out to people. Um, connecting with religious scholars outside of Japanese studies, we tend to be very siloed. And of course, yes, growing my YouTube channel.
0: Awesome. Well, where can people find you if they want to know more about your work and seeing what you do?
1: I have a bright and shiny new website at www.ugoretzresearch.org. Awesome. Uh, is spelled U-G-O-R-E-T-Z, research.org. Um, it's a hub for kind of all of my, my projects and my services, including um, my public and academic scholarship, YouTube, this interdisciplinary um, video game studies website I'm working on with some friends, uh, copy editing, consulting. Of course, people can find me on my YouTube channel, Eat, Pray, Anime, and they can talk to me in person on Twitter at Caitlin Ugaretz. That's K-A-I-T-L-Y-N-U-G-O-R-E-T-Z.
0: Well, Caitlin Ugaretz, future Dr. Ugaretz, if I may, um, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas, for chatting with me about this very wide variety of fantastic scholarship that you engage in for academia, but also for the broader public. I mean, you have so many projects in the works that just are inspiring to me as well as somebody who does this kind of work. I'm so constantly curious what all of you are up to. And I've just learned so much. So thank you so much for being here and spending this hour with me. It means a ton.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been fantastic. Step into the world of power,
0: loyalty,